Two thumbs, meaning that we are operating. So here we go. March the 24th, excuse me. (coughs) Ah, golly. March the 24th, 2019, lecture discussion number 57 on the book of Joel. And as is our custom, we are muddling about, rolling the waters, scaring the fish. And believe it or not, I'm really getting to be pleased, somewhat pleased, at the response to our little brief shallow excursion into the subject of timelessness. The timeless nothing as opposed to the time-affected nothing. Let me put that on the board so that you can begin to... These are important important issues because they force you to think about the person that is God or the person that is Christ. Most of us, most churches do not have an understanding of Christ that is actually accurate. And we anthropomorphize. So I'm asking you to consider timelessness as opposed to time-restricted. That which is timeless, that which is time-restricted. Or if you wish, void zero and void one. This is what we like to do to God, and it is not ethical, and it is certainly not biblical. We try to restrict God inside of time because that is our perspective. And my attempt is to get you to begin to recognize that. If you get the correct understanding of timelessness, in my view, you will have the deity of Christ. Every time I run into somebody that has an error in the deity of Jesus Christ, it is because they have some kind of humanity-focused Perspective for God. They assume that He has the same frame of reference that we do. And all it takes is a few simple questions to make that manifest. So the whole point here is to get you to think in this, these kinds of concepts so that you recognize the complexity of it. There is a timeless nothing as opposed to the time affected nothing. So I have two nothings. The first nothing is void zero, is that nothing in which there is no time. So I have a nothing that has no time in it, and I have a nothing, supposed nothing, that has time. Void one, the second nothing, is the nothing that is subjected to time, time restricted, uh, time governed, if you will. And of course, there really is no such thing as void one. There is no perfect vacuum, that's what they call Void one is a perfect vacuum, and there is none. And, 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 by, and we, by we I mean they, propose a nothing that is not nothing. So there is no void one. There is no nothing. Nothing in, in void one is something. And you've heard me say many times, the, the space that they want to be the perfect vacuum has at the very least electromagnetic influence. In other words, there's electromagnetic radiation that is in that space. Uh, at the least, and there's microparticles. For example, is there one photon in space, in any area of space? Any, if I took a cross-sectional analysis of, a, of space, would there be one photon in it? There, the inability for us to detect 
something in nothing is really where we're, we're at. That is the conflict. And that begets the logical question or the progression of questions as to the nature of timeless nothing. If, time, if I'm saying to you that time governed or time affected nothing is not true, that it is not really nothing, then what's the obvious question? Is timelessness nothing actually nothing? Does that make any sense? I can tell by how you're looking at me. That, uh, let me try this this way. Is timeless nothing something? Yes or no? And the usual method of approaching the concept of timelessness is to imagine timelessness. So I want you all, even those with children, which is difficult, because now you're completely focused on something other than yourself. But I want you to imagine a timeless condition. There is no time. It's a thought experiment. Whose grandchildren are those? Oh my gosh. There's hundreds of them. And they all look the same. Good grief. This is a tragic event here. Okay. I want you to just sit back now and concentrate as best you can and try to imagine timelessness. And now another question immediately comes flying out of the dark something, which they call nothing. Is it possible for a time-restricted consciousness, which is you and me, to perceive, to conceive timelessness? In other words, are we capable? I'm asking you to think about timelessness, to imagine timelessness. The question becomes, can you actually do it? You're in a time-affected or a time Restricted uh, condition, can you, in that restricted consciousness position, even think about what timelessness is? So let me put it another way. Who can comprehend timelessness successfully? I can identify it. Can I imagine it? In other words, am I so inundated by time that I cannot imagine timelessness? Does that make sense? How am I doing now? Okay, good. Two of you think otherwise. If you wish, what is required? Let me think. Can a human being then or an angelic being understand timelessness or is it beyond our capacity to understand it? What is required, try it this way, what is necessary to envision a reality that is not controlled by time and has no space, which is something, and has no energy, and it has no matter? That is the void zero. Where do I get this concept? A timeless void zero that has no space. No time, no matter, and no energy. Where is this discussed? You're right in your Bible. In Genesis. Oh, Genesis. Is that what it is? Okay. That is fantastic. How how long have you had this Genesis? And what verse of Genesis is this? 
52.3. Okay. Everyone on the internet will look up Genesis 52.3 to find out if there is such a thing. What's the chick? Uh, you're confident. And it talks about timelessness. Okay, cool. But you can only see it if you So there is a disclaimer attached to this promise. They will all do it. The, the millions of them. Okay, both of them will go and look this up. I guarantee it. I know they will. And then they'll what? That's right. They'll sue you. That's exactly what will happen. I know these people. <laughs> so what is required? What is necessary to envision this reality that does not have any time, any space, any energy, or any matter. And from this void zero, from this nothing, I hope you remember this, the creator, the created order was spoken into existence by the creator. So from this nothing, this timelessness, this void zero, this is where uh, all of creation was spoken into existence. He used his voice. So what's the next logical question here? Who heard it? There is no humanity. There is no animals. There is no angelic being. Now, let me be careful here. Because I have Job to deal with. So I have to talk about when was the fall of Satan. Does that... Does that explain it for you? Uh, hopefully it does. But in Genesis 1-1, not Genesis 1-2, not Genesis 1-3, Genesis 1-1, from the, from the timeless nothing, all of the created order, all of time, all of space, all of energy, and all of matter was spoken into existence. Who heard his voice? Where I'm headed here is what's required for sound first. Did, was his voice audible? Does, does, did this, that's a better question. Did the timeless state have sound? Is sound a physical property? Or is it a mental property? Obviously sound is a physical manifestation of a mental property, though there are many of us who speak without thinking, right? As you know. What about the falling tree is something that I get when I try to discuss this. You will say, what about that, Mr. Answer Me That Dude? The falling tree in the forest, when it falls, what does it fall into? It falls into a medium. What is that medium? Is it nothing? No, it's something. What is it? It's the atmosphere. It is air. What's air? What percentage of oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen does it fall into? The falling tree falls into this, this medium, this something. And that causes vibration, doesn't it? And that vibration, uh, those, those waves begin to travel. So I have the traveling of sonic waves. What's the reason the tree fell? The tree in the forest. Was it decay? Was it previous structural damage from what? Wind? Earthquakes? Lightning? What is wind? It is movement of air. 
Just like speakers push air. You can feel the speaker pushing the air. Can you feel the wind? Duh. Does wind produce sound? Absolutely it does. So who hears the tree in the forest with nobody around hit the ground? What is the difference, therefore, between detection of sound and hearing sound? Because I'm trying to draw a distinction. In other words, as an aged person, me, my sound receiving devices are less efficient than when originally installed approximately 66 years ago. Sound waves bombard me, but I'm unable to assign intentionality to the meanings, to the vibrations. I'm detecting them, but I cannot understand them. So I'm detecting the movement of the medium, the atmosphere, the atmospherics, if you wish, the audible disturbances, they're occurring, but my receptors, my reception of the disturbances is at a level so low as to make them unintelligible. And this usually occurs, coincidentally, at frequencies that correspond to the female voice. I'll let you think about that a second. The point is, yea, a point, just because I'm not attaching intelligence to the incoming oscillations, because that's what they are. They are oscillating waveforms, does not mean that those waveforms are not present. Just because I can't detect them or assign intelligence to them does not mean they don't, they're not coming. So that tree fell in the forest. This is the butterfly thing, right? A butterfly flaps his wings and a building falls down somewhere around the world or something. I've never really evaluated it, but the little tiny thing occurs over here and it sweeps through the whole world. How far did those sound waves travel? Now, they're hitting friction because the medium produces friction. Who heard the tree? Who has the ability to not only detect the slightest vibration, but to assign meaning to that vibration? You see where I've gone here? Obviously, it's the one who hears all things, sees all things, and knows all things. The absolute observer. That which is observed and perceived is reality. The questions of the travel of sound could be applied to sight. How many photons are necessary? To rephrase that a bit, if an action somewhere emits one photon of light, who will see it and, and, and apply meaning to it? Who has that capability? Obviously, we do not. Okay, now, back to timelessness. Did sound exist in timelessness? So when God spoke, did, obviously there's no being at this point. Did it make a sound? Is there sound in timelessness? Does sound exist in timelessness? To repeat, is sound a physical property or a mental property? Do you hear with your mind? Yes or no? Can a tune that is not being played nonetheless get stuck in your mind and you hear it? To use the common example, what is therefore the origin of sound? Is sound physical or is it mental? 
Does sound originate in consciousness, ultimately, is the question. You may have noticed that I, I ask about the origins very often. I want you to think about the beginnings. What is the origin of consciousness? This becomes turtles all the way down, doesn't it? What is the origin of life? From where and when did existence arise? Obviously, matter, energy, space, and time. Um, from whom, from what is the beginning of these? I said from whom because that's correct. It's a whom that began this. It's a person. What is the origins of mathematics and therefore infinity? What about the physical laws that are universal throughout all of the universe? How does the universe have physical laws that are uniform? What is the origin of these physical laws? Actually, again, whom? Language. Where does language come from? What about will? Will is intrinsic with existence, as you know. So this is the beginnings of things, both physical and spiritual. I'm trying to make you, as much as I can, begin to uh, form an explanation of the beginnings. Not just the who or the when or the how, but the why of the beginnings. From where is found the why of the beginnings? Where can you find out why these things began? Just throw in a few more supposed interesting questions as I define interesting. Revelation 13.8. Okay, hang on just a second. Get this one here. Go. Absolutely where exactly I was. He asked the question that I should have asked, that I thought I was asking. What is the difference between God's thinking and God's speaking? Is there a difference? Is there a difference in a timelessness environment? Why does he speak to us or why did he? And he spoke to us in a time-restricted environment because he put us in one. Why did he put us in one? Why aren't we in timelessness? Can we be in timelessness? Just think about that. Now, Revelation 13.8. Did Christ add humanity? Yes. When did he add humanity? Christ is God and he adds humanity. Revelation 13.8 tells us that. When did he add humanity according to Revelation 13.8? Do you know? Should I read it? I will. Critical verse. Aren't they all? Uh, 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? The Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. What is the foundation of the world? Matter, energy, space, and time. When did God, when did Christ add humanity, the mystery of godliness, the hypostatic union, the God-man, Jesus God? Did Jesus God add humanity in the timeless state? Or did he do it inside of time? This is essentially Bill's question now, isn't it? Again, when did Jesus Christ have humanity? 
And I can start putting these things on the board for you because you know uh, Genesis 52.3 is going to have to go away. They will push pause. They will find it. And then they'll think about it for a long time. And then they'll blame you for making them do that through me. So when they come after me legally, I'll transfer that burden to you. That's how it'll work. Okay. The person of Melchizedek is so incredible. I think he's the angel of the Lord. When I say the angel, I mean the one angel of God. Um, Sometimes you'll see it as the angel of death. Or the destroyer. But I think the angel of death is actually the better translation. So here, let me give you the commander of Joshua. is also the angel of the Lord. So let's throw these verses up here. I have Genesis... 14, 18 through 20, talks about Melchizedek. I have Genesis 18, 1 through 3, and Genesis 19, whoops. Genesis 19, 24, this is the angel of the Lord, and some would say this is the angel of death because of what he's doing in Genesis 19. See also Genesis 32, 24 through 30. Exodus 12, 23. Again, that's the angel of death. Exodus 12, 29. Joshua 6, 13 and 14. Ezekiel. 1, 4 through 5, uh, 1 through 26, or 1, 26 through 28, Revelation 1, 12 through 17. Hey, what are all of those? Well, these are instances in the scripture where Christ appears in a human form. In the likeness of a man. And I've said before, obviously, Abraham worshipped Melchizedek. So Abraham makes a decision to worship Melchizedek at Genesis 14, 18 through 20. He does it again in Genesis 18, 1 through 3. I think that's Melchizedek in both places because of the actions of Abraham. He identifies that person as someone to be worshipped. Uh, and you have angels with Christ as well there, and they would not have allowed uh, Abraham to worship another angel. I've had this discussion many times, as you know. That's my opinion. A- anyway, in any event, Abraham recognizes the angel of the Lord in Genesis 18:1 through 3. He bows down, and I'm, I'm asserting that all of these references are Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, the question becomes one of the lambs slain before the foundation of the world as opposed to the incarnation. So let me put that on the board. We're talking about the difference between the pre-incarnate Christ 
in the incarnation of Christ. And I'm asking you, when did Christ add humanity? Remember, he's a timeless being. He's the one who controls time. Incarnation has the meaning of in the flesh. So that gives us an indication of the explanation. What is the difference between the pre-incarnate Christ and the incarnate Christ if there is a difference? The incarnate Christ is forever fully human and infinite God. That brings us to a discussion on immediately uh, Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Exodus 21, 1 through 6 is a great mystery that tries to explain this. When did Christ add humanity? And it uses the subject or the context, if you will, of slavery. God's frame of reference being outside of time causes us to have to recognize what's going on. Is being outside the time, outside of time, the same as before time? Let's look at Exodus 21. Say that again. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. Seven years. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out. In other words, on the seventh year, he, he goes out free and pays nothing. What is that? Why that's seven? If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. The incarnate Christ is forever human. Why? He's forever human and infinite God. The pre-incarnate Christ. What is the difference between the incarnate Christ and the pre-incarnate Christ? Why do I have pre-incarnate Christ? If if I'm right and Melchizedek is Christ, being worshipped by Abraham, being explained as outside of time in Hebrews, if that's him, he looked like a man to Abraham, did he not? Here at Genesis 18, when he comes to Sodom, to Abraham and Sarah, he looks like a man. Abraham prepares food for him, but nonetheless bows and worships him as God. Here he's destroying. In Exodus, he's the angel of the Lord, the angel of death. In Revelation and in Joshua, again, the commander, he looks like a man. When did Christ add humanity, is what my question becomes. So hidden in slavery here in Exodus 21, 1 through 6, is this incredible mystery, the greatest of all mysteries, the mystery of godliness. And without controversy, 1 Timothy 3, 16, great is the mystery of godliness. 
God was manifested in the flesh. When did that happen? Before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. So reconcile everything you think with that verse. And again, Exodus 21, 1 through 6 gives us a glimpse into this mystery of godliness. Uh, to repeat, forever fully human, always infinite God. When I say fully human, he is fully sinless human. Perfect humanity. So how do you explain the pre-incarnate Christ? First, you've got to say why. Why does he have, we have these pre-incarnate Christs? And there's a lot of them. It would be handy to have access to that, answer me that dude. I wonder where he went. He could be anywhere now. Obviously, and I know you all know this, if you think these are simple discussions, my gosh, they are not. They are really difficult. Why does he make them so hard? Boy, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I'd have the biggest motor home ever. Yes, sir. Well, that's a wonderful question he asked for those of you. And I could hardly detect him, even though he was not in that really difficult frequency range. It was still nonetheless difficult for me. Um, But uh, he's asking for the Internet, does God have essentially two voices? Well, we know he has a creation voice. We know he has a resurrection voice. Um, uh, Does he have just a communication voice? And when he does have that, when he uses that communication voice, how well does it go for the people who are listening to it? Or is it all the same? That's a wonderful question. We should again find that answer me that dude. Where did he go? I'm going to submit for today that the answer to the pre-incarnate incarnate issue was given to us by Christ himself. Because Jesus Christ calls himself a couple of things that help us here. He calls himself the Son of God. Emphasis on the. He also calls himself the Son of Man. Well, isn't that interesting? And I have not ignored your question about the voice of God. We'll be getting there. I did help you by saying he resurrects with that voice. So that's important. What's the difference between creation and resurrection? Did you ever think about that? How many of you think there is a difference? Never raise your hand here. Okay. (laughs) Oh, a foot goes up in the back. (laughs) That's very good. Gosh, you never cease to amaze me, young lady. You remarkably uh, uh, endowed here with sarcasm. I would like to think that it comes from my side of the family. Yeah, yeah. Who in your family is like me? Exactly. (laughs) There is no one like me, except maybe someone. Okay. 
Jesus says that he is the son of God and he's also the son of man. So what's the obvious question? What's the difference? What does the son of God mean that's different from the son of man? Can't he call himself the same thing? Why has he got to give us a whole bunch of stuff here? It's hard. We don't want to work this out. What is the difference between those two? He does it all the time. The son of God is a Proverbs 30 verse 4. Let me put that on the... And you start going, wow, that's cool. Proverbs 30, verse 4. I got it now. I can just go there and that's son of, that's son of God. But then I got John 3, 5 through 14. Where Proverbs 30, verse 4 and John 3, 5 through 14 feather together. But John 3, or 5 through 14 seems to be a son of God. Where Proverbs 30 verse, I'm sorry, son of man, where Proverbs 30 verse 4 seems to be a son of God. And yet both of them, I have the ascending and the descending and the lifting up and the brazen serpent in John. And that clearly is Proverbs 30 verse 4. But John 3 is also where Christ declares himself to be the son of God. And as you know, John 3.16, John 3.17, John 3.18, those are... For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his son. For God did not send his son to condemn, but to save. We should read those three all together. Because here is where the son of God, son of man, is confronted for us to figure it out. And obviously, in my view, it starts to speak to what? starts to speak to Pre-incarnate Christ and incarnate Christ. So let's see how we do. That whoever, let's see, start 16. For God so loved the cosmos. Now your Bible might have world, but it is, it is, the, uh, it is the entire creation, the entire created order. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. Notice that belief, but has everlasting life. But have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. So those three verses, um, if you wish, those are a unit. They are joined by Christ. And um, I always hear them individually quoted, but I think that's... Uh, misleading. You should always tell yourself that those three go together as much as I can. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. So what is he saying with this, these incredible statements of 3, 16, 17, and 18 of John? I'm going to give you the basic level, the elementary, if there's such a thing with the Bible. There isn't. I'm going to try to make sense of it if we can. Son of God and the Son are the same. So when he says the Son, he's saying the Son of God, the only Son of God. That's Proverbs 30, verse 4. Proverbs 30, verse 4 asks, what is the name, the mystery of Agur, we'll get that in a second. What is the name of the Son? What is the son's name? And now we know the answer to that question. 
the name of the angel of the Lord or the angel of death, the pre-incarnate Christ, the name of the Son is salvation. He would reveal his name to be salvation. And Agur famously wrote, Surely I am more stupid than any man. That's why I like him so much. He had a proper assessment of himself. And you cannot take away John 3 from Proverbs 30. They are uh, connected together, the complements, Old Testament and New Testament. And if you do that, if you dissect it, then, well, see Agar's, surely I am more stupid than any man, and please don't call me Shirley. Anyway, Son of God, the Son, is the second person of the Elohim, the us of Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.26, Genesis 3.22. And incorporated in that, as you know, is the image of God. So, the Son of God and the image of man, according to our likeness, is connected. This speaks of Adam, but also testifies of the Son, the image of God. The Son, therefore, has sameness and equality with God. That's the Son, the Son of God, the image of man, all of that together, and equality with God. Hopefully that gets you started now. Son of man refers to something a little bit different, but not quite. It is Daniel 7, 9 through 10, which is primarily now the mission of the Son of God. So I have the, the deity of the Son of God, the Son, and his name, Salvation. And I have the Son of Man, which is his mission to be lifted up. If you want to think of it as redemptive work, I think that would be appropriate. It's the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 9 through 10, where he is the judge. It's Revelation 1, 12 through 17, where we see the Son of Man. The Son of Man receives the glory. He's the King. He's the one. He is the humanity, the perfect, infinite, sinless humanity. And this is explained further in John 5. Well, since I'm here, let's do it. 5.25. You might not think it's explained here, but actually I'm giving you all the pieces. John 5.25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. There's Dana's point. And those who hear will live. So I have a voice that causes life. Dana asked, does he have another voice? Does he? If he has a voice that causes life, creates life, resurrects life, does he have a voice that does something else? Dana answered his own question. Those of you on the internet have, were ahead of him, weren't you? Yeah. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Does that make sense? That's the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. For today, answer this question. Did Christ have humanity in void zero? Yes or no? What did you decide? Did he have humanity in the timeless state? Remember, he had it, Revelation 13, 8, before the foundation of the earth. So he had to have it in the timeless state. He's the lamb slain. 
So you go ahead and figure that out. What is the difference between the pre-incarnate infinite Jesus God and the incarnate Jesus God? That might be a trick question. Okay, last Sunday we started Revelation in a misguided attempt to include the seven churches of Revelation 2 through 3, I more or less just blasted away, knowing fully that only the vast Internet audience would be able to stop and repeat and pause and all that stuff and research the Scripture references, etc. You analog congregants pretty much got a headache. And those that remained awake, at least. And I should say here again, that sleeping soundly during the lecture is a valued tradition at beautiful downtown Cliffside. Everybody succumbs. There is no exception. Slumbering is ubiquitous here. And I, myself, am usually out cold at about the 20-minute mark. Most Sundays. Some, some Sundays I make it all the way to 30 minutes. Check the tape. Oh, you can't. Because we edit that out. And so you can't catch me. And you can't catch me because you're all what? You're all asleep. That's right. You're comatose. That's when I usually just quit. And you don't know it. It's fantastic, my system. You think I got 60 minutes here. I'm 45, 50. No, I'm lucky I got 30. There's this wonderful sign I was telling Matt earlier. There's this wonderful sign at the Alaska Railroad when I worked there. And I have to read it. I had to write it from memory, and I'll read it. I'm pretty sure I got it correct. It was fantastic. They were well known for their signs, um, and most of them were not serious. And this one, thank you, ma'am. This one said this. Nice, wonderful sign on the bulletin board, framed. Attention. It has been reported to management that those dying on the job are failing to fall down. This condition will not be tolerated as it is becoming increasingly difficult to distinguish between the dead and the natural movement of the staff. All supervisors shall institute immediate corrective measures. And that was there as long as I worked there and have been there probably for 20 years before that. And it still applies today, doesn't it? Huh? That was the, uh, that was the mechanical shop. The middle bay of the mechanical shop. So it would be where the locomotives come in for inspection. You have to go see if it's still there. Yeah. That would be great if it was. It was an old, dirty sign. But uh, so the, the, we had a safety meeting. And we elected people to push down the dead. So, so if you see someone that's dead, just make him fall down so that we can assign the living to whatever task there is. Okay, Revelation 2 through 3. The seven churches, and the seven churches are followed by Revelation 4.1. Can't stress that enough. I'm going to erase all of this over here, but it all fits together for you. Because... I have incarnate Christ here, as opposed to pre-incarnate Christ. So I have Revelation 2 and 3. And then I have Revelation 4, number 1, verse 1. This is why I get the money. 
right here. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are followed by chapter 4. You got that? Thanks for the applause. That's really appreciative. I, I need to be cheered instead of booed every now and then. Yeah. Okay. But that is really of profound significance. Because I have the seven churches. This is a discussion of seven, not six, not five, not two and a half. Seven churches is the discussion here. And who's doing the discussing? And and people will tell me, and somebody has recently, that I should use the word ecclesiastical. And that's absolutely true. But most of your translations will say churches because they don't like to say ecclesiastical. They'll say ecclesiastical Babylon. Or they'll say the church of the whore of Babylon. But in any event, I have seven churches, a discussion of seven churches. And then at 4.1, I have the come up here. So after the discussion of the churches is the come up here. That is an extraordinary piece of information. To repeat, Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 are directed, concentrated, exclusive to the seven churches, the bride of Christ. And immediately subsequent to that is Revelation 4, 1. I have a door that opens and he says in a what? Loud voice that people hear. Does everyone hear it? Is there a voice that only some hear? Is there a voice that all hear? What are the differences God voices? When does he have a voice that everyone hears? And when does he have a voice that only some hear? But after he said, after the, the discussion, the concentrated seven church, the exclusive bride of Christ chapters comes this opening of a door and the, and the voice says, come up here. Now keep in mind, John in his Gospels has what? John is authoring this. John in his Gospel has seven signs. Uh, the guy that wrote Revelation, used as the vehicle by God, and uses the vehicle to write the Gospel of John, has seven signs in seven churches. That's probably coincidental. Meaningless. Absolutely of no value whatsoever. And there's many who say that. But John has seven signs. And what's the purpose of the seven signs? The purpose of the seven signs is to prove that Jesus Christ is the person who's talking about the seven churches. Because if you read the description of Jesus Christ in, in Revelation 1, 12 through 20, Revelation 4, 3, Revelation 19, 11 through 12, Daniel 7, 9 through 10, Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, it is the person of Christ. John describes him. He, sp- he spends all of his time in the Gospel of John proving to you that the person of Jesus Christ is the one who gives you the seven churches. They look the same. And all of this describes Jesus Christ as, as he truly is, this bright, white, blinding white light, loud, deafening voice. Eyes like flame, everyone falls as dead before him. That is Jesus Christ, and John is trying to prove it in his gospel, and then he reveals it in Revelation. That's Jesus Christ. If you have one of these little... Praying Christ with the flowing hair and he looks like a blue-eyed European whatever. That is not what he looks like. And that's not what he ever looked like. 
And you look at some of the statues of Christ and all of this stuff. What's the word that I want? It's pathetic. It's doctrinally absurd. But we really like it. People see uh, one of those pictures on a ham sandwich and they sell it for 100000 on eBay. That's perfect. Absolutely perfect. You can't get a better example of the idiocy of the church than that. You have to look at Christ as best you can accurately. He's portrayed in Daniel, Ezekiel, Matthew 17, Revelation, the true Christ. And those images are consistent and they... Uh, they are not the ones typically constructed by men making money selling paintings or sandwiches or whatever they sell. John the Apostle, John the Revelator, first gave us seven signs that proved that John's description of Christ at Revelation 1, 12 through 20 and 19, 11 and 12 are the same person. The seven signs of the Gospel of John are the pre- precedent of the pre- yeah, the precedent to the seven churches of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So they lit, they literally go together. These fit to that. And now I know there is mass disagreement as to the meanings of the seven churches and the seven angels that accompany the seven churches. So I have seven churches and I have seven angels that are assigned to each church. That's probably a coincidence too. Has no meaning. That's what they'll tell you. The obvious question is obvious, isn't it? Are the seven correspondents, are the seven churches correspondent to the seven signs of the gospel? Yes. The answer is yes. And then are the seven churches and the seven angels and the seven signs, are they all attached? Again, the answer is yes. How about the crucifixion week? That's a seven. How about the Passover? That's a seven. How about the creation seven? How about the millennial seven? How about the 70 weeks of Daniel 9, 24 through 26? How about the 70 years of captivity? How about the seven in the menorah? How about the sevenfold blessings of Abraham in Genesis 12? Two through three. How about the seven cleansing provisions, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the seven-year tribulation? The seven parables of Matthew 13, the seven things that God's, God hates. Do you think there's any relationship between that and the seven churches and the seven angels? Or is the seven churches and the seven angels just out there on their own? Again, I'll help you. God has placed sevens throughout his, his word everywhere. And they are all directly interwoven. So the answer is yes. And yet many say no. They say the Revelation's uh, seven churches are not significant. Do you have a uh, question, young lady? For what? I'm sorry, you're in that frequency and I'm having trouble. Oh, 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 got you. I thought you said, where is the ear? And I'm going, gosh, where is the here when he says, come up here is an excellent question. Who comes up here? And I will say this to you. The church is nothing but disgust right here in Revelation 2, but 3. It's everything but the church. And then he, when he says, come up here, we don't hear about the church again for how many chapters? All we have then is Israel. So where is the come up here? Did you answer your question? Yeah. That's why this is very important to see that juxtaposition of those. 
church 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 Come up here. Israel, 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 Israel. That's how the revelation is designed. Church. Revelation 19. A lot of people say, no, the Revelation 7 church are not significant. It's merely a description of seven churches that no longer exist that used to be in Asia Minor, which is pretty much Turkey, Armenia, maybe Syria. And these have no connectivity to anything else in Scripture. They're completely isolated. What's that? There were lots of churches in Asia Minor. Why these seven? Excellent point. Wish I wrote it down. Now, obviously, I think that those who hold this view that there's no connectivity are, what's the appropriate euphemism here? I've got to be nice to them. Uh, stupid. Okay, that's not nice. How about moron? Okay, I like that a lot better. It kind of has a ring to it. I should start a, a religious movement called the morons. Oh. I could have a, an angel blowing a trumpet called... Now I'll stop. That will get me banned, won't it? I've been trying so hard. I know people that have been banned. I'm so jealous of them. Do you have a job offer? Good, good. I'm going to need a job. Okay. <laughs> Let's agree that there are none who personify idiot more so than Hollywood celebrities are. Maybe the tube-faced people. So we can call them that. That'll be my euphemism. I submit that the issue is settled at Revelation 1 through 3. We are taught right there what the purpose of the seven churches are. Wouldn't you expect that? Just back up a little bit and look. Here's what he says about this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. What does that imply about those who can hear? That it isn't universal. Some can't hear. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Who said that? The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man said that. And keep these things which are written in it, for the time is near. The time is, what he, what he means by that, that's an age. The age is near. And then he gives to John the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. He calls it, God himself calls it a what? Let me repeat it. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Well, I think that kind of saddles it. But not to everybody. The, the response of the Hollywood celebrities is not that. They say Revelation 1-3 doesn't apply to the seven churches. They say the prophecy part of Revelation starts at Revelation 6. Really? This is the timeless, incarnate God. Doesn't he know about Revelation 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5? Wouldn't he have put, blessed is he who reads the words of prophecy at the end of chapter 5? And that's what he was going to do. Okay, next week, we will battle our way through more of this. Because it's so much fun. You can see the crowd is just bursting. That's the way it goes in these subjects.